This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to evaluate what's at stake, what's, what's being risked anyway by Amanda Nunes. We'll actually talk to Eddie Wineland, who takes on Sean O'Malley at UFC 250. And speaking of UFC 250, it's so funny. We're going to talk about how people are already sick of MMA, and it's only been back about a month. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156 at 1 p.m. East Coast time. And don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. Happy Thursday to everybody. We're two days out from UFC 250, and I got to tell you, it does not feel like it. You, I, I have the same amount of buzz, or I should say I feel the same amount of buzz for UFC 250 as I do for any old fight night card, much less a pay-per-view. I don't detect even the slightest degree of buzz for this. We'll get to what that means a little bit later. It is so funny to me that, uh, I mean, listen, this whole COVID thing, I, you know me, I was out there espousing taking precautions, um, you know, and I thought that the May show and that the one they did for in um, Las Vegas last week, I wasn't against those. Uh, quite, I mean, I mean, I publicly said I was not against them. And it looks like the Nevada show, they really went above and beyond probably even what they need to do. But certainly they did what we, we would consider something pretty good, pretty safe. Right. And I had said, hey, now that we've got this is all I ever wanted, a commission to develop safety protocol. California's done the same thing. Now any promoter can follow it who can you know, meet the demands. And of course, it's going to weed some people out, but it at least puts the train back on the tracks. In theory. Anyway, I was I was in favor of all of that, and then these protests get going, and you know I'm not against the protests per se, but who the hell knows what the COVID implications are for any of this stuff, right? But to me, it was so funny that people were arguing, oh, we gotta, you know, these COVID protections are overblown. We gotta get sports back to to bring consciousness, uh, or uh, not consciousness per se, but um, to bring joy back to people's lives. You've had four fight cards, and y'all are already bored as s. I, hilarious to me hilarious that we ended up here all it took was four fight cards for people to start checking out again it, there's not even any competitors i mean i guess there's been some titan fighting championship stuff but isn't that amazing all right so that leads us to a question about the main event which is where we're going to start today's show amanda nunez puts her ufc featherweight title up for grabs against Felicia Spencer. Now, we'll talk about Felicia Spencer and what kind of threat she poses a little bit later in the show. For now, though, it's a question about what's at stake for Amanda. You know, you look at this and you ask yourself, like, dude, why is she taking this fight? Uh, okay, I mean, she's taking it because it's a payday, because she probably wants to stay active to some degree. Uh, she is expecting a family, right? I think her uh, girlfriend, or I, don't, I think, yeah, I don't think they're married, so I think her girlfriend, her partner, uh, Nina Ansaroff is pregnant with their child. So, you know, there's going to be some maternity leave, I think, that's going to be in order for both of them. And so maybe, you know, getting in a fight before that is probably a, a priority. I don't know when the due date is, but in any event, you know, you would imagine once the kid is here and everything, it's going to be a, a bit of a, you know, as, as a guy who's only been a dad for about a year, it is a disruption to your life in terms of the way you used to live it. Um, so... Okay, so that, you know, it makes sense why she would do it. But when you look at some of the other factors, it's a bit of an odd, it's, everything about it's kind of odd. 
First of all, featherweight's not even a division. You can go to UFC.com right now, and there isn't any rankings at featherweight for women. Of course, there are for men. Max uh, Alexander Volkanovsky is your uh, champion. He's going to fight Max Holloway. But for women, there's nothing. It's just she's the champ. So I think it's the first time she's defended it in 18 months as well. And, like, did anyone miss it? If she skipped another 18 months, would the world cry about it? I mean, they might ask questions about what its necessity is, but I don't think they'd be clamoring to put it in rotation. So that's really weird, right? And then you look at the matchup, and it's like Felicia Spencer, just a couple of fights ago, was getting tuned up by Cyborg. Granted, she has she had done really well before that and has since rebounded after that. She's not, you know coming off of a loss to get this opportunity uh, to be clear she had the two wins well uh, she had the one win against megan anderson then she lost to cyborg and then she just beat the completely overmatched zara farim dos santos uh in you know basically half a round in february but okay so like what's at stake for amanda here right when you look at it the answer appears to be you know, I guess you could lose the title, so that would be at stake. But is there anything grander at stake? And, and it's hard one to answer because I, I, I don't know exactly what she gets with a win, right? Like, what is the total upside from a win? I mean, is if she didn't get a ton of popularity from beating Ronda or beating Holly, some some from beating Holly, some from beating Cyborg, but you know, it was it was a cumulative. Is she going to get all that much from beating Felicia Spencer at 145 pounds? Did she get a whole bunch extra from beating Duran to me at 135? Here's what I would say. This is my best assessment of things. I'm not even opposed to this fight. And if you look at the odds, uh, it sounds like I'm opposed to it. I'm just sort of describing how weird it is. But if you look at the odds, this is by far the biggest mismatch in terms of the odds on the card. But that is when you should never let your guard down. Listen, the upper bound limit of Amanda Nunes is far in excess of the upper bound limit of Felicia Spencer. That's a fact. So that means that whatever you want to say, nine times out of 10, 99 out of 100, 999 out of 1,000 or better, Amanda Nunes should not lose. The problem is if there are other circumstances that we're not aware of, right? Is it a case of Amanda's taking this fight just to stay busy for the reasons I mentioned? Um, is there, did she get proper training at American top team, given all the sort of the COVID protocol that has been in place and the gyms are being closed and, and everything else out there. You, you never really know. And here's what you know for a fact. This is not even the most interesting fight Amanda has had in years. This is, by contrast, the biggest night of her professional career for Felicia Spencer. And Felicia Spencer did not get put away by Cyborg after three rounds of a beating and has otherwise an unblemished record, by the way, as a black belt in jiu-jitsu. A good one. Uses it in her, in her careers all the time. She has an excellent rear naked choke. She has used it to effect four different times. Very, very good attacks from the back. So what do I say is at stake for here for Amanda? Number one, you, when you are a champion, as long as she has been across now two weight classes, the amount of tape on you is extraordinary. There is very little that Amanda is going to be able to conceal 
in terms of what she can do to Felicia Spencer. Now, she might be able to add some feints and different setups to hide some of that stuff. But in terms of what they know she can do, she can't really camouflage that anymore. That's a problem. Number two, if you go and you look at some of the toughest fights some of your best fighters have had, it is when everyone least expected it. No one thought in the first fight Gustafson was going to give John Jones problems. Tim Elliott gave Demetrius Johnson basically everything he could handle. And I could go down the list of, you know, Matt Sarah beating GSP. It happens all the time because this is the kind of thing that will tell you and probably prove in the end that the hardest thing to do is just stand a post and accept the wave of oncoming challengers. It does not matter necessarily if the challenger is super heralded. And yes, sometimes there can be real mismatches where you look back and say, maybe we shouldn't have done that, like a Nate Quarry versus a Rich Franklin. Okay, it happens. But in general, it usually goes the other way, that when a person has been an established entity for so long, and you get a young upstart who's only been competing as a pro, in the case of Felicia Spencer, since 2015, it's the biggest night of their career. They may never get back to this spot. They are going to perform, generally speaking, far beyond what you might think they're capable of. And Amanda has everything to lose at this point. So what I say is up for grabs is one, to me, the odds won't reflect it. But these are the kinds of moments where you have significant upset potential. So for Amanda to join Henry Cejudo and join Daniel Cormier as a person who has defended titles in two weight classes... A, would make this a historic victory. Two, she'd be the first woman to do it. And three, if she can maintain that same kind of consistency, just winning, 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 and it doesn't matter if it's a Holly Holm, which is incredible, or a Felicia Spencer, which maybe people didn't think was all that great, and then it probably turns out in the end it was pretty pretty difficult. Certainly the second Duran Demi fight, she'd already beaten Duran Demi, and the second fight was really tough for her. It's that consistent chopping of the, uh, of the wood, of the swinging of the axe. And the people who can do that, the champions who can do that uh, at length, in this particular case, across two weight classes, they join the history books, and that's the kind of thing that adds to her greatness. She is already, in my judgment, the greatest female fighter of all time. What she adds with the win over Spencer isn't necessarily this will be the page in the book that you will look at and say, oh, wow. You know, wasn't this really impressive? It will be a, a, a one chapter as a part of a larger body. When they can say how long they went um, without losing, when they can say how many different ways in which they won, striking versus wrestling versus jiu-jitsu, 135 versus 145, it's part of that. But make no mistake about it, I don't care what the odds say. You know, would it be surprising to me if Alicia Spencer goes out there and just gets bombed on and finished off and... Uh, 60 seconds? No, it would not. Would it be surprising to me if she pushes Amanda Nunes to the absolute brink and even beats her? Sorry to tell you folks, no, it would not. For all the reasons aforementioned. Odds won't tell you that. History will. So it's a tough fight, believe it or not. Um, at least there, there are reasons to think that it could be, is the way I would put that. And the upside for Felicia, excuse me, for Amanda is not so significant in a punctuated way, right? Conor McGregor going up a weight class and beating Eddie Alvarez at UFC 205. That's a really punctuated moment. That's not this. This adds to the body of consistency and puts her in the record books if she can get the job done, along with Henry Cejudo and Daniel Cormier. To me, that's what's at stake.
at UFC 254, Amanda Nunes. This week on World of Basketball, Argentinian legend Luis Scola joined the show and spoke about why the Golden Generation team of the 2000s were so successful. We got a little lucky. We had the best talent we have in a whole history at the same time. And the fact that those happened on the same era, they happened to be friends. They happened to play in different positions and they happened to have great chemistry together in the court and off the court. Those things you can't control. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. Let me tell you something, folks. If you only came to MMA after Conor McGregor or Rousey got here, I'm not here to judge you, right? Everyone comes to the sport whenever they come to the sport. But if you're trying to figure out who's an OG in the game, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. One of them is if they have a hook-and-shoot event on their resume. Uh, our next guest does, and his career rolls on, coming off of a big win. He's heading into UFC 250 when he takes on Sugar Sean O'Malley. Very interested to talk to him today. It's the one and only Eddie Wineland. Hi, Eddie. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. How are you guys doing? Yeah. Good. You know, we were just talking about your resume here. Dude, you were starting to fight in 2003. Do you ever, do you <laughs> yeah. ever reflect on how different MMA is now from then? Uh, dude, it, it's, I mean, it's night and day difference. When I first started fighting, I mean, I, I started fighting because it, I just liked to fight. It wasn't the cool thing to do, you know. I mean, in 2003, 135-pound fighter, there was no UFC. There was no, you know, there, there was no... Um, I'll be honest, I never dreamed of making it a career because it just, there was no 135 pound division outside of, I just wanted to fight. I wrestled all my life, uh, got out of high school and it's kind of like, I was left there scratching my head, you know, what do I do now? And a buddy of mine turned me on to, uh, Keith and Justin Wisniewski at Dillman Valley 2 and, and, uh, went in and trained with them for a couple of months and started fighting. It's unbelievable. So you've been doing this forever. You you fought uh, all the way back in WEC before it was integrated, and of course you've been in the UFC um, ever since the the move over. A couple of questions before we talk about UFC 250 here. You had a lot of consistency sure. from 03 to around mm, to, uh, 2011 or 12, and then you've been a little bit more inconsistent in terms of the frequency, right? You fought once in 2017, 2018, 2019. I think once in uh, 2013. What, what was the reasoning behind yep. that? Um, you know, not not by choice. I mean, I, um, when I first started fighting, I mean, it, it, they were local fights. They were um, they didn't have athletic commissions. It was there. I mean, there was fights happening all the time. I think there was a a stretch there. I fought nine times in eight months, or eight times in nine months, something like that. Um, again, I, I my last few I call it the annual the annual Eddie show. Um, not, not by choice, you know, uh, small, small little nagging injuries. Um, obviously I broke my jaw there. I broke my foot, um, a couple of little injuries that have held me back. But then, you know, after this, after the pulp fight, I wanted to stay busy, but, uh, I got the bright idea to sell our, our freshly built brand new house and buy a house that needed a complete remodel. So, um, I was stuck trying to get walls and floors on my house so that my family could live before I could take another fight, you know, they actually, they offered me to fight in October, uh, shortly there, you know, from June to October. So a quick turnaround, which I'm going to avoid taking it, but I was too busy trying to get my house in order. Um, again, not that, I guess that one was kind of by choice. <laughs> I, I chose to buy the house and remodel it, but, uh, you know, I, I would like to be a little more active than I have been in the past few years. What's the, for a guy who's been fighting for 17 years, what's the worst injury you've had? 
Oh, uh, man, I, I busted my jaw twice. You know, I, I broke my jaw in 2004. And then, uh, you know, I, I was content with hanging it up then. You know, again, where's where's this going to take me? You know, it's it's I'm getting paid $500 for $15,000 hospital bill. You know, that doesn't really make sense to me. But, um, you know, I got back on the horse, and, and unfortunately I broke it again in 2014. And, again, I was content with walking away. You know, I had fought for a title. I had, I had uh, you know, done just about everything you could do in the sport outside of holding the UFC belt. And uh, then we had our first son. He was born and, and, again, got back on the horse just to prove a lesson to him. You know, when he grows up, he's going to see, you know, life gets hard. You get knocked down, you get up, and you keep moving. Wow. Uh, very good. Well, Eddie Weinland joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. Uh, all right, Eddie. So I got some other questions about other things going on, but let's talk about UFC 250. So we actually had Sean O'Malley on the show, and he certainly had nothing bad to say about you, but what we asked was how the fight came to be, and what he said was uh, that he saw you were available and called the UFC and said, why don't we do that, and they made it. Is that your understanding of how this thing got made? I have no idea, honestly. Um I, I was obviously supposed to fight in March, of which that got nixed because of COVID. Um, then they they actually offered me to fight him again uh, when he fought uh, Song Yadong, but with my with my uh, work schedule, I couldn't I couldn't make it work. I just didn't have the time off of work. I couldn't uh, I couldn't make the time slot. So they obviously they gave him the, the Song Yadong fight and. Um, so I, I, again, was on the phone with Sean Shelby and, and, you know, what are we doing? Do I have a fight? Should I, you know, do I keep moving forward? What, what are we doing here? I need something, you know, because I, I, I can't keep living in that that fight realm with nothing coming up. Um, you know, if, if I don't have a fight coming up, I'm going to pump the brakes a little bit here and take a little bit of time to recover, recoup. I've been training for four months for one fight. Mm-hmm. So, um that was the name that he came up with. I don't know how he came up with that name. I mean, if Sean called and asked for it, right? Um, if, if it was just this guy's available, that guy's available, I don't know. It's my understanding that uh, Keller had called him out. Um, and I, I see he's on the same card, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe he let him call his own shots, or, or maybe it was just they're trying to use me as a stepping stone. I'm not sure how the whole thing, how the whole thing came about. Well, let's talk about the fight itself. Uh, Sean O'Malley, obviously a rising star. Um, size him up for me from your perspective. What are you up against? Uh, he's tall and long. He's, he's really unorthodox. Uh, he throws, throws a lot of kicks. And, uh, I mean, he's, just, he's got a, a, an ever-improving game. I mean, I think he's improved significantly from his first time on the, on the contender show till his last fight uh, back in, I believe it was March, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Early March or, or whenever he fought. Um, I mean, there's there's been some big improvements there. Uh, he's uh, he's fast. He moves. Uh, he doesn't move forward and backwards like like the normal person does. But then again, no, neither do I. You know, so so you got two guys who move similarly. Um, he's a little bit longer, a little bit rangier. So so I mean, I, I'm gonna get hit. Uh, it is what it is. We're fighting. It's uh, I know how I'm gonna react. It's it's how is he gonna react once he feels my right hand. Every time you compete, Joe Rogan always really re- comments on the u- unusualness of your style. Uh, I mean, w- how did you develop your style? Was it a conscious decision to do things differently, or did it just sort <laughs> of happen no this way? I, yeah, it did. that's just kind of where the cards fell. You know, I, I took the deck, threw it up in the air, and that's 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 where the cards landed. Um, you know, I, I I I try to show people, you know, do this, do this, do that. 
I, I can't really teach what I do or why I do it because I'll be honest, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know why I do this, why I do that. It's all, it's all off of reaction. It's all to try and create a reaction and reaction to, to their emotions. So it's, um, it, it's, I don't know where I'm going until I'm there. Hmm. So have you ever had coaches try to like say, Oh, we gotta, we have to, we have to make you do things differently. Have you had issues with coaches by virtue of the uniqueness of your approach? No, no. So uh, I've been with the same team now for the last, what's it been, 10, 10 11, 12 years, something like that. And um, we've, all, we've all got a, a, really, a really strong dynamic between us. And, uh, you know, we'll throw out new things every now and again, just, hey, let's try this. So we'll try that. And, you know, we'll... we'll if it feels awkward at first, we'll stick with it for a minute. If, if we can make it work, we make it work. If it just if it just feels too weird, we throw it out and forget about it. Um, so, you know, so so we are trying new things, trying to develop different movements. And, and well, you, you move this way, so what if we did this over that? Um, you know, trying trying to bring different things to the table. But um, you know, we all we all work very well together, and um, it's just it's a nice little nice little tight group we got. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, Eddie Wineland joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. In terms of your style's development, um, you mentioned sort of trying new things more recently. Have you? What's the way I'm going to ask this? Have you? Is there an underlying philosophy to it? Like, is there a? If you had to explain what the significance of your style is, is it just to be unpredictable? Is that what really makes it what it is? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's in the fight game. If you can catch somebody's timing and and and, and they create a pattern, I mean, you can catch them. You can catch them every time. Um, the the unpredictableness again. I I don't know where I'm going, so I I, I don't know. I wouldn't right. know where to hit me because I don't know where I'm going. So the unpredictableness and and it, it makes it hard to catch a rhythm or to catch timing because I don't go the same way. I don't I don't fall back the same way every time. Interesting. Uh, okay, so let's sort of plan out what your 2020 is supposed to look like, right? In an ideal world, if you beat Sean O'Malley, where does that put you in the division? I mean, I guess it would put you, it would jump you into the top 15, right? Well, I was going to say, I would think it jumps me, at least it jumps me ahead of the stepping stone, you know? Um, and if, if that's, if they're using me as a gatekeeper, as a stepping stone, you know, whatever you want to call it, that's, that's fine. You know, you use me for that. I'm, I'm still here. I'm still relevant. Like you said, I've, I've been fighting for, for the UFC since they started. I, I think I'm one of the, the longer, if not the longest standing bantamweight with the WEC UFC organization. Um, so, you know, what, what I, what I like to, what I like to get to that title shot. Yes, that's great. Um, you know, but, but it just keep me fighting, keep me fighting and, and keep me moving forward. And, and I'm content and happy. Interesting. A lot of times when fighters get put in the position that you're sort of articulating here, stepping stone, whatever you want to call it, they really kind of reject it. You don't seem to be as, you don't seem to be as against the labeling or am I misunderstanding you? <laughs> I've been, I've been used as, as a, as a pawn before. Um, I mean, when I fought Antonio Benuelos in 2006 for the belt, um, you know, it wasn't come out and said, but I mean, Let's let's put the cards together here. I mean, I'm fighting a guy 20 minutes from his hometown. The guy's Mexican. I'm fighting him in a town full of Mexicans on Cinco de Mayo. I wasn't brought in to win that fight. I was brought in to be a tough opponent that this guy's going to beat, and he's going to go home with the belt. Well, I, I think I proved then and there that, yeah, maybe on paper you're supposed to beat me, but that doesn't mean you're going to beat me. 
Um, I'm okay. I'm okay with with being the underdog with with having having this card stacked against me. I've, I've almost literally got nothing to lose in this fight. You know, this oh. guy's coming in at eleven and oh, I don't know, and he's past his prime, which. I wouldn't say I'm past my prime. I'm 35 years old. I'll agree with you. I'm on the tail end of my career. But at 35 years old, I'm in better shape than I was at 25. So past my prime, I, I don't I don't think by any means. Um, so th- there's a lot of people that are looking past me. If you look at the betting odds, I, I, think, uh, I think that explains it. Uh, if I recall correctly, wasn't uh, was, when you fought Benuelos, wasn't he getting a bunch of attention because he was training with Liddell and uh, yep. all those guys at the pit? And so he, this was sort of supposed yep. to be like his coming out party, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we spoiled that. Certainly did. That's a hell of a win for you as well. Um, okay, so <laughs> I, I have heard, and I don't know if this is true, so maybe you can help me figure this out. Have you taken, uh, do you have other work outside of fighting? Is that true? I do. I do. What do you, I've been a full what do you do? firefighter since 2008. Wow, what has that been like? Um, you know, it's it's uh, with the whole COVID thing going on. Um, they've just taken a lot more precaution on medical calls. So like, we we run a medical call unless it's something critical, unless it's a full arrest or somebody's unconscious. We we basically just stage and wait for wait for the ambulance to get there. And if they need us, they call us. If they don't, then we clear the scene. Um, so, you know, they've just been taking precautions. If we got, if we have to go into a house, it's uh, full PPE. We've got face shields, uh, face masks, uh, like a hospital gown type thing. We put on gloves and, uh, everything gets, everything gets tossed after we're done. Everything, everything gets sterilized and, um, just, just the general precautions of, of trying to keep the virus at bay. No, I guess what I mean is, um, you know, why did you do it, right? A sense of civic pride? Oh. Um, because it's good sure. for oh. your family? No, you know, I, I mean, it, it's, um, I enjoy helping people, you know? Everybody everybody wants to claim all firefighters, heroes, yada, yada, yada. I, didn't, I, don't, I don't do it for a title. Um, you know, the people who need legitimate help, I enjoy helping people. And uh, that's what makes me feel good. And, um, I mean, outside of, outside of helping people and, and doing, doing what I like to do, if I wasn't a full-time firefighter, I wouldn't be sitting here on the phone with you right now. I'd be, I'd be putting a seventy or eighty on work week in a steel mill and, and uh, maybe lifting occasional weights when the time allowed for it. Yeah. So the the like you and Steve Miocic, right? The firefighter life certainly makes some demands, but there is enough flexibility that you can do this kind of thing as well. That's the idea. Absolutely. I mean, we we, we put in a hundred to one hundred and ten days a year. And then uh, outside of that, I mean, we've got 265 days to to work out and train and, and fight and do do everything outside of firefighting and helping people. So uh, have you been, well, you know, Gustipe, I mean, listen, every one state is different with every restriction being different. You're, mm-hmm. uh, you're in Indiana, is that right? Yes, yep. Yeah, so I don't know what the COVID outbreak is like there, but I'm guessing that you've had, well, I'll just ask you, what have been the restrictions on training that have perhaps impacted your ability to do this? See, I mean, the gyms, the gyms have basically been closed. And, uh, you know, luckily for me, I've got, I've got just kind of a down and dirty home gym, uh, just barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells, stuff like that. And uh, I've, got, I've got a nice little, like a 15 by 15 area of mat space down in my, in my basement. So, um, you know, I, I would get my little workouts in, that I, my strength and conditioning stuff that I needed to get done. 
Um, my strength and conditioning coach, he, he moved half of his gym into his garage. So, you know, bouncing, bouncing back and forth between his house and my house. And then, uh, we'd get a couple of guys together and, and wrestle around a little bit. And, um, I mean, that was, that was about it. And then everything kind of started opening back up and, and be honest, and we won't say who or where, but we backdoored a couple of workouts and, um, you know, we, we did what we had to do to prepare for this fight. Well, you know what, man, you have seen it all. You've done just about the rest of it. And, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to this fight on on Saturday. I think it's very competitive. I think you got a great opportunity here. Certainly, you're you're one of the uh, OGs in the game. So let me get your perspective on this before we send you off. Um, the top of the the field, advanced weight. I don't know how. Well, actually, let me ask you this before I get your opinion. How much MMA do you watch as a fan? Uh, I'll be honest. I don't I don't watch a whole lot because I mean my my between my career, my family life. Um, my, my little projects that I have going on outside of, outside of my own training and fighting, they, they take up 99.999% of my time. Okay. So, so maybe... I don't, I don't watch a whole lot. I watch highlights. Um, you know, I, I watch highlights and, uh, that's about it. All right. So do you have a sense, maybe, maybe you don't between also on your card who might win between Corey Sandhagen and Aljamain Sterling? Man, that's that's such a that's such a good fight. That's a, that's uh, those guys are so so well matched. Um, I, I think the advantage Sandhagen's going to have is is that that Aljo's coming off of an injury. He's coming off of an injury and he's been out for a while. So uh, shit, I, I, his last fight was when my last fight was. He fought Chicago on the same card. Yeah. Um, you know, I, he was dealing with an injury. I was dealing with with a home remodel. So. Um, you know, I don't know when Sandhagen's last fight was, but uh, that's going to be an interesting fight. Very interesting fight. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that one as well as yours. It was great to catch up with you, Eddie. I'm glad to see you're still doing your thing. Really looking forward to Saturday, and uh, thanks for making some time for us. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. There he is, Eddie Wineland. What a great guy to talk to. I like talking to OGs, man. You always learn something a little bit new talking to them. WWE legend, The Undertaker. I have tried my hardest to protect kayfabe. Honestly, just within the last couple of years, I mean, I would cringe when I would hear people, you know, like we're doing now, like talking openly about behind the scenes stuff. It would just like, I, I'd grit my teeth and just, I think I was the real last holdout to, to kayfabe. Listen to Busted Open's interview with WWE legend, The Undertaker, on demand now via the SiriusXM app. Just search Busted Open Interviews, now free for most subscribers. I wanted to get into this because I find it very funny. Uh, you know, listen, here's the thing. I, all of us have been wrong about COVID. All of us. Me, I've been wrong. For example, I'll give you an exa- uh, a perfect way to illustrate it. I thought Florida was going to, this was a long time ago, back in March to April. I thought Florida was going to be an absolute disaster and it did not end up coming true. And that forced me to reconsider what we knew. I mean, a lot of things came true, right? You know, the, the way New York simply managed it poorly came true and, and, and then some, right? I mean, what they had to deal with was unbelievable. Uh, but, you know, there was a lot of alarmist reports about what would happen in Florida that heretofore has simply not come true. Uh, on the other hand, there were a lot of folks being like, eh, this is no worse than the flu, when quite clearly it was significantly worse than the flu across virtually all demos, right, except maybe children. But even then, it's been so, so much. I mean, we have 106,000 dead Americans. Right? If we had 106,000 dead Americans from terrorist attacks, we'd be firing nuclear weapons at this point, okay? So everybody has been wrong to this to a degree because it's new and 
Um, we simply don't know what we're dealing with in so many different respects, right? And we're still learning new things every day. In some cases, it's less lethal than we thought. In some cases, now we're learning that uh, even people uh, can get uh, strokes and heart attacks and other kinds of organ failure, even though it's supposed to be a respiratory disease. I mean, this thing is just changing constantly as we get new information. What treats it? What doesn't? You know. Okay. All I, all I can say is I hope we can get a vaccine and put it all behind us because we've all... You know, we've all had points to be made, but we've all been wrong to a degree, too. Okay. But you got to try to, like, have a conversation honestly about your motivations. My motivations were I wanted to prevent mass deaths. And we can have a debate about to what extent that worked or didn't or was necessary or not. But I'll at least say I'll defend myself. If I believed in wrong reports about modeling... Uh, I got it wrong, and I'm going to acknowledge it here, and I did. Not in every case, but certainly in, in, in real prominent examples like Florida, um, those just did not come true. And you have to acknowledge that they didn't come true, and you have to use that to evaluate your thinking. Fair enough. But I was at least honest about where my concerns came from. Okay, For the folks out there who said, we have to get back to sports because it's a way to salvage the national consciousness Right to bring it back to a place where, you know, you can have something to be happy about again—a distraction from all of this. Uh, I'm not saying we're not living in a time where we need distraction. I mean, Jesus Christ, if we need distraction, if there was ever a time in my life where we need a distraction, now is it. And I, I'll even say, uh, I said, I think I said it on Monday's show. You know, I needed it on Monday uh, because of what had happened over the weekend. Like I needed the UFC quite candidly because I was so distressed about the state of things. But there were a lot of folks who were saying, you know, that's what we got to do, you know, among, uh, and then they use that reasoning to then undermine the other like actual parts of COVID where I think most of us could agree there are real public health concerns. Okay. Well, here we are four fights back into it. Uh, no, I, I guess this will be the fifth. Right, because we had the three in Jacksonville, then we had the one last weekend. This will be the fifth card, UFC 250. Y'all could not give less of an F. <laughs> right? Again, we went back to it with the Woodley Burns stuff, with the ratings. They did fine. I don't know what kind of buy rate the main card on this is going to do. And if you're a hardcore fight fan, I'm not, a, I'm not the one poo-pooing UFC 250. I think UFC 250 has got a lot of redeeming elements to it. We've had Sean O'Malley and Eddie Wineland on the show. I talked yesterday about how I was super into Cody Garber and Rafael Sunsout. By the way, do I even need to sell you on Sterling versus Sanhagen? Uh, the rest of that card, it would be uh, Neil Magny versus Rocco Martin, which is a decent welterweight contest. Uh, let's see, Alex Caceres is going to fight Chase Hooper. Cody Stamen versus Brian Kelleher is on this card. You know, there's a Juicia Formiga's on it. Evan Dunham is back. Herbert Burns, Gilbert Brother is on it. I mean, there's a lot to like on this card if you're a hardcore fight fan. And yet most people can't even tolerate, you know, uh, any co conversation about this at all. You go look at any metric related to this, whether you can ask any website editor about the traffic. I've seen it dreadful when it comes to UFC 250. And it's not in one site, it's across the board, which means there is a genuine lack of interest in this card. Go look at the numbers on YouTube for the, uh, for the what you call it, embedded. Oh my God, it's at like 400,000. I mean, these are usually seven, eight, nine, a million. It's less than half of what it normally does. Y'all don't care. I can be honest about some of the things I thought that did not come true. I think it's time for some of y'all to admit, here we are five cards back, and you're already checked out. 
already checked out. There's going to be a bunch of people who just skip it. Hardcore fight fans, I suspect, will watch because we watch everything. But there is a huge portion of that audience who was like, yeah, got to get got to get sports back. It's got to got to lift the country up. Decent sentiment. But here we have it. And there's virtually no evidence that anyone wants to get on board with it. I'm willing to accept that there is probably some enthusiasm for things outside of common sports that folks want to watch. I bet Korean baseball is having its moment in a way that it ordinarily wouldn't. Right? That sounds somewhat reasonable. Or UFC 249 getting a handshake there from some people that it ordinarily would not have gotten. Okay, I don't think it's a crazy sentiment. But if you're five fights in and already people don't care, <laughs> it's like, dude, you didn't have fights for two, two months almost, something like that. And, you know, they're back after the fifth event and you're already checked out. Yeah, maybe that argument was a bit oversold, I think is my point. Maybe there wasn't quite as much to that as you made it out to be, is sort of my point, right? A little bit, you know, you didn't quite tell the truth there. You just kind of wanted it to relieve, you know, immediate social distancing concerns. And then once it was back, you went right back to your old habits, which is picking and choosing, which is, by the way, I don't even blame you. It's what the UFC has taught you how to do. What I object to is, you know, how this was like people were, you know, comparing getting sports back to effing George Washington crossing the Delaware or something. You know, how it was dressed up in like these really grandiose terms of, of civic pride and national obligation. And even now, we'll talk about this here in just a minute. There's a lot of people being like, you know, baseball needs to get its act together because if it doesn't come back at a time when it has a chance to really soothe the, not national tension per se, but soothe the American psyche, people just won't come back to it. All right, I'm not here to say that people, uh, I'm not here to say that baseball will walk away from that scot-free. I suspect there probably will be some lasting damage from that. But can we please can it with the over-alarmist language? You really mean to tell me that people who love baseball will stop loving baseball? You know how hard that is? Yeah, you'll lose some. Okay, that's true. And I'm not saying that Major League Baseball is in a position to just, you know, kick fans out and say, we, we, got, we, got, we have enough to spare. Okay, I'm not, I'm not, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch in this world. I get it. But this idea about like, oh my God, we need this to restore American pride. You know, you can can it with that. You can can it with that. It's not real. It's, it's just not. Yeah, if people learn to live without your product, then they learn to live without your product. But if you're a baseball fan, an overwhelming majority of baseball fans, and I know that there was damage from the last lockout. I get it. But am, am I really here to believe that people will just stop liking baseball because it takes a bit of a hiatus? An unfortunate hiatus, but hiatus just the same. When the rest of the world is upended and you can't do all these other many things, I tend to think that argument is very overblown. Now, if you want to make the argument that if you don't set a routine for people to come back and it's going to be hard to get people back in sports stadiums and blah, 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 and it'll just be hard to get back to normal and that will impede things, I'd be a little bit more you know, willing to, to, to buy into that. I think that's probably not crazy, but, uh, you know, oh, we have to restore the American psyche to pre-COVID levels. No, you're just bored. 
Just say what it is. You're just bored and you want some baseball. And there's nothing really wrong with that. Right? But if when they bring it back, you're back to doing the same kind of thing as before, which is getting bored with it within a month of its return, maybe restoring its national consciousness uh, and uh, helping the American psyche wasn't exactly what it was about. Just putting that out there. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.